0: It was nice,
1: and uh, you are inspired. Uh, The word Hanukkah, of course, means uh, rededication, and all of the Swarim tell us that uh, we are not just commemorating the uh, rededication of the Beis HaMikdash uh, thousands of years ago, but rather each and every one of us have to be a sanctuary for the Shechina. And when we dedicate the Beis HaMikdash, we're actually dedicating ourselves uh, to Hashem's service. There is a famous saying which actually goes back to a Mekobal in Svat, the Sefer HaRedim, and it's also a song and a series of books of Svarib, I will build in my heart a dwelling place for Hashem. Or maybe you've heard the phrase, and uh, that's what Chanukah is about. So the truth of the matter is that just as when they dedicate the Beis HaMikdash, you know, you don't just do a dedication. The dedication is to continue in the service. That's the purpose of it. So too, Hanukkah was a rededication, but now we actually have to do the avodah HaVpoel, the actual Avod HaShem that we carry out into our lives. So in that sense, I hope that uh, it should bring a light uh, to you and light to all of us, light, light of Mashiach, light mm-hmm. of Gaula, the light of Hashem's presence uh, within us. Um, I don't know, did the, uh, did the COVID vaccine get to Israel Yeah, I don't even I don't yeah, know, is Israel ready? Okay, so Bezras Hashem, I hope uh, it'll also be, uh, everything comes from Akhaleshporaka. I mean, nothing nothing happens without Hashem, but if this is the way that Akhaleshporaka will help us uh, get over this uh, difficult situation, then Bezras Hashem, we hope and we pray that uh, it should be a, a, a refua. I will not address the controversial issue whether a young, healthy person should get the vaccine. I will leave that for your own individual. Um, thinking, uh, but uh, it's an interesting question, because uh, all vaccines do have risks, meaning even if, you're, even if you're absolutely pro-vaccine, the Supreme Court of the United States has said that by definition there are risks, but the risks are small, and the gains are great, and therefore most people feel that a vaccine is a justified risk, uh, because uh, the dangers of not getting are worse than the small dangers of getting so no, so really you can't deny the dangers but the question is you know did small you danger not getting like, virus well i'm not talking no, about no, no. a small box whether it's polio so with covid that the COVID vaccine did not undergo all the testing the average testing that a vaccine takes before it gets to market is 8 years 8 years this was around 11 uh, 12 months a, a year or less than a year now Hashem, it was there was a very good reason why they had to rush it because know they wanted to rush it because people were dying but that does mean that this is uh is, is not as tested as much as other vaccines so again it's not something to think about uh but as a shame, everything should should go well now that i now that i scared you to death I'm well, my regular my regular topic okay so we were talking about um uh, organ transplants and if you remember uh we divided it into three groups and we're going to talk about group three today which is the most complicated Group one, when you're still alive, and that would be kidneys. That also means partial liver, partial lung, skin, corneas, those things can be taken. Well, corneas, inside, corneas not, but those things can be taken when a person is alive. Again, it would be kidney, because you have two of them. Liver, because uh, although you only have one liver, but the liver can regenerate with only part of it there. Lung, I believe they can also do the sim- similar idea and skin, okay. Uh, Now there, the issue was simply this. Uh, The bottom line, without going over all of the lambdas, without all all of the theory is, that there is no obligation to put yourself in danger to save another person. But it is meritorious to do so if that person is in a definitive state of sakana. So that would mean, halakhically, I don't have to donate a kidney even to save a life because that's putting me at risk. I don't have to donate part of my liver, that's putting me at risk. Uh, But if I decide that I want to do it, it is considered to be a mitzvah, it is an act of chesed. And Baruch Hashem, we actually have within the Orthodox community, uh, people who have given kidneys, given livers, uh, partial liver and, 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 and the like. So that's category one, that's category one. Category two, are the organs that you take after a person is dead, after a person is dead, and putting aside heart, because heart is gonna be a separate category, that'll be a category three, so that would be the cornea of the eye, and that could also be skin, taken from a person after they're they're dead. And here, the halachic issue is one of autopsy, corpse dissection, mutilating a corpse, not having kavod for a corpse, but there, the rule is, that even though those are prohibitions, those are laws, those are halachos, but they will yield to save a human life. They are not one of the big three that you have to die uh, rather than uh, being over them. So if giving a cornea or giving a skin to a burn victim could save a life, and remember I had mentioned that blindness is considered to be life-threatening, so corneal transplants that can prevent blindness fall under a permissible category, you would be allowed to. So in other words, the issue of corpse dissection to save lives would be permitted, but halacha differentiates between what you might call therapeutic use and educational use. So if you want to give your body to science, you want to give your body for medical dissection, you want to give your body to an anatomy clinic, even though in some sense that may wind up saving lives by yielding general medical knowledge, uh, that is not a hetero of pikuach nefesh. Pikuach nefesh means there has to be an actual person who is potentially whose life potentially might be saved with what you're doing. It can't just be general medical experimentation. So giving your body to science uh, is usher. Giving your body to an anatomical dissection, uh, that's going to be usr. But if you want to give your body for post-mortem transplantation, but again, this does not include the heart. Uh, Keep keep that in mind, because that's going to be a biggie. Uh, Halacha would say it's going to be permitted. Uh, The only question is, is there a difference between giving to Jew and giving to non-Jew? So this is tricky. Technically speaking, the obligation that allows you to violate the Torah to save lives is only the life of the Jew, not the life of the non-Jew. Uh, but the Poskim have postulated a category called Ava. Ava means hatred. Meaning, if you don't help the non-Jew, they will hate the Jewish people, and that could endanger the Jewish people. So, indirectly, uh, such a heter was developed as well. Uh, that's that's how we desecrate the Shabbos. So, if a non-Jew has a heart attack, we will call up uh, an ambulance. Uh, someone to use that for organ donation. Others say, "Well, that's very questionable. It's one thing to say they'll hate us if we don't call the ambulance. It's another thing they say they'll hate us if we don't give organs. I mean, most of the non-Jewish world do not donate organs, yeah, so it's not like them. they're going to hate you because you didn't uh, donate but your but organs. If
0: you're taking organs from them. We will take from them their own back.
1: Well, that, that that potentially might be a problem. So uh, call it hate. That, that might that might cause. In fact, uh, in the European Union." Which is you know known, known for their uh, general anti-Semitism, but in the European Union, they wanted to have a rule that no person could receive an organ unless they had to in advance Thank you. Thank
0: you.
1: Uh, a willingness to donate organs, and that was targeted specifically against religious Jews in Israel who were going to Europe to get uh, transplants. I'm sorry, did you see to end up? Uh,
0: yeah. So you were saying that like a um, a organ taken from a like a human, a corpse, like yeah. a dead person, yeah. it can't be for experiment, but what if it's like they're unsure if it's going to work? Like, it's experimental for a person. Is that a, does that still count?
1: Well, if it's going to go into the person, then it's permitted for sure. Like, I, even I, if
0: it doesn't, like, even if it goes to waste?
1: That's correct, but you never know. Uh, but what I'm saying is, if it's just general research, it's not going to yeah. actually go into the person.
0: But what if they know, like, God forbid someone's dead, and... Someone's blind, and they're like, "Okay, well, we could try taking his eyeballs and putting them in you, but
1: there's only a ten percent chance it'll work." Uh, that's one hundred percent permitted. Fine. That is fine. That is fine. Uh, when I talked about um, you can't take it for research, I just meant you know dissection research. I didn't mean uh, transplantation mm-hmm. research into the actual person that it actually might might help. Okay. There, even if there's a one percent chance, you're it's, allowed yeah. to. Uh, to. By the way, they are working on the first. This is very fascinating. They are working on the first brain transplant, which is uh, very, very, very amazing.
0: Um,
1: if they transplant somebody else's brain into your body,
0: uh,
1: what? Who are you?
0: Are, are, are you the bo- Are you the body or
1: you the brain? I, I mean, uh, logically, just from a pure standpoint of logic, you are the brain, the, because I mean. Your personality, your memory, your Something your your so life. That
0: person's brain, okay, where's the brain coming from? The problem right? is this ima- imagine the a situation code someone
1: else. No no no. Another you you have the following situation. You have a situation where uh, somebody is either dying of cancer, they're gonna die very, very shortly, but their brain is good. And then you have another person who is a victim of an accident.
0: So, and he's brain dead, but he ha- but he has a brain healthy. Brain. So that person really is going to be that person. She's a different
1: body. That's correct. In other words, even though he looks exactly like. Is
0: that from my left point also?
1: Well, yes. that's the question. The, the posthumous not the, the has been has been not addressed it. So that's the question. Yeah, that's the question true. is, uh, <laughs> if a Cohen's brain <laughs> goes into a non-Cohen's body, uh, is the person a Cohen? Who is he married to? In other words, yeah. uh, I mean, uh, I mean, what is
0: the soul attached to? Uh, yeah, well, that's the question.
1: Well, the question is, uh, the soul is not attached to the body. The question is, is it attached to the heart or to the brain? Well, Those are the two. Yeah. Uh, so that that's a that's an interesting, and very deep Kabbalistic question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the heart. There's the heart, and there's the, the brain. And here, the heart still belongs to the body, body guy, and the brain belongs to the guy who's dying of cancer. And uh, it's amazing. This is amazing. They've done a face transplant, but that's different. A face transplant is not really. I mean, it's bizarre, but a face transplant is not conceptually that difficult. In other words, if, if, if I have somebody else's face, so I look like somebody, but it's still my body, my brain, my heart, so I, I'm I not... The
0: brain yeah. is like the
1: but the brain is different. A brain transplant is not the same as a face transplant.
0: I watched a documentary on somebody yeah. having a face transplant yeah. and it looks like, pretty amazing.
1: No, it is amazing, and I can imagine psychologically... Psychologically, it's extremely traumatic.
0: I, I can imagine
1: that. But in terms of who he is. I feel
0: like the brain is very much who you are. Like if you took Einstein's yeah. brain and put it in someone else, then Einstein would be Einstein.
1: Yeah, uh, that's, that's correct. So uh, again, the, the postgame have not addressed it, but, but it, just in, pure, in terms of simple logic, it would appear that uh, it is the brain that would define who you are, and therefore the fact that you're in someone else's body, that's just a shell, that's just a covering, that's a lavouche. That's only a garment. But they're actually working on it. It's extremely complicated surgery, you can imagine. It'll probably take around uh, 50 hours with a team of surgeons to do. They have to connect every blood vessel and everything else. Amazingly, amazingly complicated. But people are talking about doing it. Uh, I hear I heard it relatively soon. I don't know. So that's a fascinating point. So we're not really going to talk about that other than what I, what I mentioned. But the thing I want to talk about now is heart transplants. And um, here you have to know. That a heart transplant is the most common and most important transplant surgery that is uh, that is done. Uh, I remember when the first heart transplants happened. They happened, I believe, in 1968. I remember. Uh, yeah, yeah, long time ago. Uh, and uh, the guy that did it was uh, a surgeon in Cape Town, South Africa. Dr. Christian Barnard uh, did the heart transplants, and in those days. Uh, they, were, they were only doing it on people who, who were going to die in a, in, a, in a few days. And usually, the heart transplant, they died faster, meaning it was totally experimental surgery. So if a guy was going to die in a week and they did it, he usually died in a day. So it, it was not successful in that way, but what did he have to lose? Right? We discussed that. He would be allowed to take the risk. He had such a short-term life expectancy, he could endanger his short-term life expectancy if there's any chance for a cure. But initially, for a few years, heart transplants killed the people faster than they would have died from the underlying heart condition. But eventually, there is a learning curve. And heart transplants are now uh, relatively successful. Um, Survival rates could be five years, even ten years. And even though that's not a cure really, uh, but to have another five years or ten years of life is a tremendous, tremendous uh, My
0: mom like had a lung transplant, and like yeah. when she woke up, they thought she was fine, and then okay. she died the next
1: day. The next day, yeah, yeah. Like they yeah. thought yeah. she was fine. What
0: happened the next day? Yeah. She died. Okay. Like, yeah. She yeah. Died?
1: yeah. Now here is the thing: the uh, the big danger with all transplants is what's called rejection. Uh, right? You know this. Uh, the body has a rejection system. That's a very important part of your body. That's how you fight disease. When germs or sickness or bacteria or viruses come into your body, your body reacts. Uh, white blood cells, whatever it is, kill or fight. You know, and that's, uh, in fact, a lot of the pain that you feel when you get the flu, it's, it's so interesting. It's, it's, al- it's almost a metaphor for the mulchama between the Yetzir and the Yetzir A lot of the pain that you feel, the swelling and the temperature, is not the sickness, it's, it's essentially the fighting, the body fighting back uh, against that, that disease. It's mamasheh, a eh, milchama. So the rejection is very important. But the problem is, because Hashem made the body, that it rejects anything foreign in the body. That's how it attacks. So that means, if you have a heart, or a lung, or a liver, or a kidney, taken from another human being with a different genetic structure, your body attacks it. And rejection is a common reason why people die after these organ transplants. So here is the thing. In order to facilitate a transplant, we have to lower or almost destroy the body's rejection system with certain medications. Now, you understand the problem with that. If you destroy the body's rejection system, you could easily die from a cold. You can easily die from anything. Which means, in other words, people after transplantation surgery are extremely vulnerable to even the smallest type of infection or illness, right. the smallest one, and when people die, uh, they either die. In other words, two opposite reasons. They either die uh, because their body rejects the organ, or they die because they have no the opposite reason. They have no rejection system, and they die because somebody sneezed, you know, in the in the hospital room. Uh, so those are the two main causes uh, that can happen it's extremely da- dangerous in other words to, they have to lower your rejection system to a level that's down to almost zero and you don't realize without a rejection system you know I, I couldn't walk in the streets like anything you know any anything in the air uh, would kill how long
0: does kill. it take to build that back
1: up uh, it takes around six weeks so like for six weeks the person has to be in a bubble okay. basically when
0: my dad had cancer yeah. he yeah like the way of the hospital that he was in was like to even go into the room, to use a sanitizer yep. a bunch of times, yep. We be yep. careful because everybody there is incredibly mm-hmm. uncomfortable.
1: That, that's correct. That's
0: correct. Crystal, you know, um, yeah. Why
1: you, wash your- you know, hospitals are very, very dangerous places to be. To tell you the truth, I mean, yes, you have to go. If you have to go there, you have to go there. Uh, but especially for, I mean, this may sound funny. I wouldn't call it funny, but uh, it's an ironic observation. Uh, a hospital is a very dangerous place to be, especially if you're sick. Uh, Because if your immune system is compromised, hospitals are filled with infections all over the place. Mm -hmm. And even the casual visitor off the street is carrying things that may not affect a regular healthy person, but can very, very much affect a person with a compromised immune system. So uh, this is something that I have to be aware of. So in in a way, I mean, uh, in fact, a lot of the COVID, I mean, without getting into the politics of COVID, a lot of the COVID deaths in New York. Uh, were essentially uh, kind of hospital based because of uh, various things that were done in hospitals. Not in the correct way. Okay. My grandmother went in for surgery and
0: she got a superbug. In the she
1: she got what yeah. she got. She got a superbug. She yeah.
0: went in for yeah. surgery yeah. and got a superbug. Yeah the yeah. Hospital here is such a problem. Well, not I just here. Every, every Yeah. No, I went to visit a friend and I walked right in, walked right everywhere. You know, no, 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 nobody away. stopped I you. Nobody, nobody stopped. They didn't even ask who I was.
1: Really? Even that? Even that?
0: Yeah,
1: even that? I'm very surprised. I'm very surprised. I'm very surprised. Okay. I'm talking about like three weeks ago. Because I thought with uh, COVID they'd be a little more a little more careful. Like right that. or nothing. I walked yeah. right into her room. I said, "Where's?"
0: where's where? I asked someone and I was like, where's oh, the Blank, blank, is. blank. And they were like, oh, right down the hall. Oh, yeah. And then we <laughs> a That's guys to this.
1: That's really it. That's I had a whole thing prepared. I was like, oh, it's my sister. It's, right. right. right.
0: it's like my best friend. Yes. Yeah. Well,
1: okay. Okay. Room. <laughs> <It's probably laughs> okay. Right. okay. So, be so it as it may, though, with all of the risks. Heart transplants have gotten uh, safer and safer and safer. And as I say, they are a pretty good operation. I Meaning, if someone is uh, in that type of distress, uh, this can offer five years, 10 years, maybe even even longer, and a good quality of life, right? So, what's the problem? Meaning, what is the pro- So, here let me explain something. Uh, that, this is why heart transplants is really a third category, right? I've talked about things like kidneys that are taken when you're alive. And we talked about corneas and skin that are taken when you're dead now we're going to talk about heart transplants which is the intermediate category and here's the problem the problem with heart, if you ask the average even orthodox Jew, what's the halachic problem with uh, donating your heart they'll say something about autopsies, you're cutting into corpses that's not MS because if that would be the only problem I already said, that would be mutter to save a person's life so the problem is not autopsies the problem is not cutting into corpses. The problem is not the ha-mesem. Some people even bring up the argument, oh, well, if you take away a person's heart, he's not gonna have a heart for the resurrection of the dead. Well, th- that's obviously not, not true because what about people who were burnt in, in the crematory in the Holocaust? I, I mean, t'chiyas is anyway, a miracle. Anyway,
0: after 10 years.
1: Yeah, the, the body decomposes anyway, you're right. And and ha-mesem is a miracle. And Hashem will give us a heart if we need a heart. If we gave our hearts to save a life. But you know what the problem of heart transplants is? The problem is murder. Murder. Because the problem is, what is the halachic definition of death? This is critically important. When is a person dead according to halucha? Now, you could answer me, well, a person is dead when the neshama leaves the body. That's very true. But the problem is, we don't see when a neshama leaves the body, and therefore halakha has to be based on certain physical indicators, which according to the halakha tell us, and in other words, you're right, a person is dead when the neshama leaves the body. That's true. But we only know that by certain physical signs of the body. What are the physical signs that establish death? This is extremely important because if the donor is dead halakhically, you could take the heart. It's a mitzvah. But if the donor is alive, taking the heart is killing them. And the halakh is very clear. You cannot kill one person to save another person, right? That's the... So what is the halakhic definition of death? And that's the key issue with heart transplant. So in order to understand this, I got to talk about secular stuff for a moment for a few moments and that is what is the legal definition of death legal meaning under secular law when is a person dead so here is the thing obviously uh, as a legal concept as a legal concept every country every jurisdiction every state can actually have its own definition so technically you could be dead in California and alive in New York. Uh, you could be dead in New York and you could be alive in Switzerland. Meaning, every, it's a legal idea. Legally, every jurisdiction defines itself. But, conventionally, there has been a change in the definition of legal death over the past 50 years. 50 years ago, if you would look at a legal dictionary, again, this is not halacha yet. If you would look at a legal dictionary fifty years ago, you would see that the definition of death was irreversible, meaning you can't reverse it, irreversible cessation, stopping, of respiratory and, d- double and circulatory functions. Respiratory is breathing and circulatory is heartbeat and pulse, meaning there were two things that had to stop. The person was declared dead when there was no breathing and there was no pulse, and a determination was made that you couldn't reverse it. Obviously, if someone stops, but you could reverse it, they're not dead. But at the point that it becomes irreversible, again, how do you know that, that's a good question, but let's just go with definitions here. At the point that there's an irreversible cessation of both respiration, breathing, and heartbeat, which is circulation of blood and pulse, the doctor declares the person dead they could be buried now, in the olden days these two things stopped at the very same time almost because keep in mind, if you're not breathing your heart was not getting oxygen if your heart was not getting oxygen it stopped pumping so, in the olden days to say you stopped breathing and you stopped heartbeat, that was kimat at the same time maybe it was 30 seconds later, or something
0: like that. What do you mean by olden days? Like before we had... But I
1: mean... Well, well, before we had respirators. But, uh, over the past 50, 60 years, uh, we developed ideas. uh, We developed, I'm sorry, technology, uh, breathing machines, respirators, ventilators. Mm -hmm. And what they do is the following. Even if a person stopped breathing, meaning to say their respiratory capacity was destroyed, we could still pump air into them through these machines, respirators, ventilators, mm-hmm. and the heart muscle would continue to pump as long as it was getting oxygen. Uh, now, the person is not breathing on his own. In fact, the person is dead. The person is, not, well, we would call him dead. The person is gone, but, but we are pumping air into his lungs. Now, let me point out the following. If a person is in a coma, the person is not dead under any definition because a coma means he lacks consciousness. But a person in a coma can still breathe on their own. So that's called a persistent vegetative state, abbreviated PVS. Persistent vegetative state is alive according to secular law and is 100% alive according to halacha. If you kill a person in a coma, You are guilty of murder under secular law, and you are guilty of ritsiha under halacha. We are not talking about people in comas, but we're talking about people who are beyond the level of a coma. And that is, we are now talking about something that's called brain death. And it's very important that you understand the difference between persistent vegetative state and clinical brain death. They are two different matsavim. Persistent vegetative state is a person who is in a state of total or limited unconsciousness. But they are still breathing, their lungs are still working, they are still digesting food, their digestive system is working, Uh, they are just not aware. Uh, Their reflexes work, if you jab a, a needle, into a person in a coma, the hand will close. If you shine a light into their eyes, the pupils will dilate, will will, will contract. So a person in a coma lacks higher cerebral consciousness, but their brain stem is still functioning. Their brain stem means the base of the brain that controls breathing, digestion, (coughs) body temperature, things like that. So, PVS patients are alive. You're not allowed, even secularly, to take a heart from a person in a coma. (laughs) That's for sure. That would be mamish murder. People in comas can be in comas for many, many, many years. People can be in comas for 20 years, 30 years. There are people that have been in comas for 60 years. There was a very famous newer surgeon, not not a religious Jew, but he happened to be Jewish, Oliver Sacks. You may have heard of him. He wrote a lot of books. I think he may have died last year or something, but he's a really, really famous uh, neuro uh, neurosurgeon. And uh, his specialty was dealing with these long-term comatose people. And he actually talked about patients who had been in comas for 50 years who came out of the comas at the end of the 50 years. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something beyond the comas. And we're talking about something that's called brain death. Sometimes it's... What happened, Oh, after the com- They eventually
0: die on their
1: own. When? The people in the comments? Yeah, no,
0: people who are brain
1: dead. Yeah, well, I'll get to it. They eventually die on their own, but I'll, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Brain death is very different. Brain death is the whole brain is destroyed, not just the consciousness, but even the brain stem is, con- is destroyed. Now, if the brain stem is destroyed, that means they have no capacity to breathe. There is no respiratory capacity. There's no consciousness for sure. There's no respiratory capacity. There is no ability to digest food, essentially. Uh, There are no reflexes. No reflexes. Uh, You shine a light in the eye, there's no responsiveness. There is nothing at all. But you can still pump air into their lung, just like you can pump air into a bicycle tire. And the heart keeps on beating. Now you may want to say, if the brain is destroyed, how how could the heart keep beating without a brain? Well, here's something you need to know. The heart actually has its own pacemaker. Meaning, as long as the heart is getting oxygen, even from an artificial source, the heart can continue to beat. But, there's a difference between PVS and brain death in this way. The auxiliary system of the heart, not connected to the brain, will not last more than six months. Meaning, I believe there is no case in history of somebody being brain dead on a respirator for more than six months, what eventually happens to answer your question is the heart stops beating and then the person dies. In other words, you're not gonna have somebody brain dead for twenty five years. Okay,
0: so about, you can
1: have somebody a PBS.
0: Right, so what
1: happens to
0: those
1: people? PBS? Yeah. So 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 that depends on what the family does, meaning if the family keeps them on life support, they isn't will not that,
0: that your, what you're saying.
1: I mean take them off life support. Yeah. Well, no, uh, that's, well I mean are you ask me halakha, or are you ask me legally. Okay. No, 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 okay, okay. Let, let me clarify something legally first. Legally, you cannot kill a person in a coma, that's for sure. But you don't have to keep them on life support. Halakha differ and not halakha serial between killing them, like taking out their heart or just
0: letting them die. and
1: letting them die. So but so but you know that once you
0: take them off lifespan,
1: I, I understand that. But, but but under secular law, this is this is very, very clear and very very settled. And
0: what
1: about halakha So halakha it, it, it really depends. Halakha would basically say you have to try to keep people alive. If they're not suffering. And since people in comas are not suffering, halakha would say you keep them alive as long as you can, and that may be many years. That may in fact be many years.
0: Can they like if they have life support they eventually die?
1: Well, uh, they may die for a lot of reasons. They may get heart attacks, they may get uh, cancers. Uh, Yeah, in other words, somebody on life support can die just like somebody not on life support can die. But that could be many years, as I indicated. There are people who might be on life support for 50 years. But brain death is very different. Brain death is a short term. It's like you don't have a brain anymore. So the heart has like a temporary system that kicks in, but it's not going to be for more than six months. Okay? And, uh, and uh, the person doesn't have reflexes, as I say, there's no digestive uh, uh, system uh, and the like. Now, here's the thing. If you had to wait to remove a heart until the person's heart stopped beating and he went into cardiac arrest, the heart muscle would be not suitable for transplantation because the heart muscle deprived of oxygen deteriorates very, very rapidly. And because it deteriorates very rapidly, just in a few minutes, if you had to wait until the guy was dead under the old-fashioned definition, you couldn't use the heart. So as a result, in order to do heart transplants, the heart transplantation industry relies on brain death, meaning to say, a heart is taken from a donor when the brain had been destroyed by an accident, a motor, motorcycle accident, but the heart is still beating because of a respirator. And we then cut into a body with a beating heart to transplant it to the guy next door. In other words, heart transplants work only if you accept brain death as the legal definition of death. Because if you required cessation of heartbeat in order to take the heart, so that's the question. Meaning like this. Again, it's confusing here because we're moving between legal and and halacha. Secular law defines what is death, and under the old definition of death that required cessation of heartbeat, removal of a heart from a donor would be murder. So what happened was, in the 1970s, it's very interesting, as heart transplants became more popular, death was redefined in secular law to mean brain death, which means the 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 guy who would be alive under yesterday's definition is now declared dead so we can take away his heart.
0: If now, in essence, if he wasn't on that machine, he wouldn't be alive. The only reason why he's being alive is because so, they invented to this machine. No, no,
1: but you see that, that's not that's that, so that's so that's, not, a, that's not enough of an argument. Because remember, uh, I mean, listen, there are people who are conscious and awake who are in yeah. machines, and we don't we don't I say know, that they're dead. But
0: I'm saying, 100 years ago, if you brain yeah, brought yeah, they would they would have died. Yeah, they would have. yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Go, you know, you're right. They would have been dead 100 years ago. Uh, but if if we have the technology, uh, they're now alive. In other words, the fact that somebody would have been dead a hundred years ago doesn't mean they're they're dead now. If if they have the sign of life, remember that the heartbeat of somebody who's on a respirator is natural heartbeat. This is a little confusing. The oxygen is being delivered by a machine, but the heartbeat is the actual heart that's beating. Right? This is not a fake heart. This is. The actual heart is beating because of the oxygen that's being delivered by the respirator. So the oxygen is not through breathing, that's 100% true, but the heartbeat is natural. And that is the only way, almost the only way, that heart heart transplants could be possible. Because if you required cardiac arrest and cessation of heartbeat, the heart would not be suitable for transplantation. Now, this already should warn you that something is very ethically very, very funny here. Um, Some of you might have read, as uh, children, uh, maybe older even, Alice in Wonderland. So, I don't remember if it's the first book, Alice in Wonderland, or uh, Through the Looking Glass, the second book. But remember, that's where Humpty Dumpty was introduced as a character. And uh, I don't even remember the whole, chocolate, the whole discussion there. Uh, but there was some point that Humpty Dumpty used the word in a wrong way. And Alice corrected him by saying, this is not what the word means. And Humpty Dumpty said, words mean whatever I want them to mean. So if I want the word to mean that, that's what it means. Meaning words mean whatever I want. Or another example, I don't know why I'm thinking of literature, secular literature today, did uh, any of you ever read? Uh, George Orwell, Nineteen
0: Eighty-Four.
1: Mm. I remember when, 19, when I read Nineteen Eighty-Four, that was a future yeah. prediction, but now it's now it's old times. But Nineteen Eighty-Four is is his uh, very nightmarish vision of t- a total totalitarian Nineteen
0: Eighty-Four,
1: it's a very famous book. No, Animal Farm is the other book he wrote. Oh, it that, is that's so. it. Yeah, he wrote, he wrote he wrote more than more than those too. But those, yeah, Animal Farm is another book that he wrote. But Nineteen Eighty-Four. Uh, big Brother is watching you. It's a totally uh, uh, yeah. nightmarish society of, of every every thought is, is controlled. And uh, he writes there that they used to have this constant propaganda. Uh, you know, war is peace, hate is love, whatever it is that, that that everything would be the opposite. That hating people is how you show love. And, and in a way, the concept was that language can eventually. See, we look at language, We normally think of language as a way of expressing my thoughts.
0: Well, but language
1: has an opposite effect. Language can also form your thoughts
0: mm-hmm.
1: by narrowing the vocabulary, by defining terms a certain way. You begin to think a certain way. Now, one of the most difficult. Let's go back to Nazi Germany for a moment. You know, one of the recurring puzzles, although spiritually it's not such a puzzle, but is Germany was a civilized society. They had art. They had culture. They had music, they had philosophy. Uh, the average German wouldn't even hurt an animal, wouldn't hurt a cat. You know, uh, they showed pictures of Nazis, you know, petting the cats and taking care of their dogs and the like. How could normal, civilized people be capable of, of doing what they did? How is it possible? These were, I mean, if you would have bumped into them in 1930, they would be your next door neighbor, morning, how are you? And just five years later, you know, they're throwing babies into fires, like, you know, how does that, it's a very big, it's a very big, how is it possible? These were like normal people. And one of the ways it worked was by constant redefinition that the Nazi propaganda mm-hmm. kept on saying, Jews are not people, they're not humans, They're they're kind of like insects that have human features. Imagine if you had like a spider that had a human face. It's not human, it's just kind of an illusion. And, uh, now this may sound ridiculous to you, this may sound, this doesn't make any sense, but this is, you know, this is repeated day after day, year after year. And eventually, the concept was, they're not really human, that's how you do it. That's how, I mean, to to a much, much lesser degree, even the United States did this a little bit. Vis a vis the Japanese you know, kind of portraying them as not really human beings, etc It
0: happens all the time. Like huh? you still see it, for instance, like the conflict that's happening between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Yeah. The like I have seen people online on both sides who are calling each other rats and dogs. Yeah. yeah, and yeah.
1: So those De-humanize are po- those are powerful words. Dehumanizing somebody then gives you like a header to do anything to them because they're not human. They're like, you know, would you feel so bad? Some people would feel bad, actually. In Kabbalah, you should feel bad even if you kill an insect. But most people don't feel that bad stepping on a bug or a cockroach. And if you made the Jew into a big cockroach, what's the problem? That's kind of how it was done. So here you have, a, I think you have a similar process, meaning like this. You want to do heart transplants, but you've got a problem. If you wait until the donor's heart stops beating, the heart's not going to be suitable. So, how do I do this? Hmm. I can't say that he's alive and I'll take his heart because that's murder. So, how do I get around the problem of murder? I redefine the person from dead to alive. I'm sorry, from alive to dead. You see, that's a very, 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 very questionable type of approach because you're using definitions. To resolve moral conflicts and you're behaving like Humpty Dumpty, you're simply redefining a term. But this is crucial you understand this. Without brain death, heart transplants would be virtually impossible. Meaning the following. Who is the ideal donor for a heart? I'll tell you the ideal donor. The ideal donor is a healthy teenager who was not wearing a helmet and got into a motorcycle crash. Now, the healthy teenager is good because his brain is totally smashed. So he may easily get a diagnosis of brain death, but we can keep his healthy heart beating by a respirator. So, Baruch Hashem, I have a healthy heart with no brain. That's the perfect candidate. I even heard, this sounds like a bad joke. It probably is a bad joke. But I heard it said that when Pennsylvania was wanted to pass a helmet law that all motorcycle drivers have to, wear a helmet, that the organ donor lobby was opposed to that law, because they thought it would reduce the number of people that they could get hearts from. Okay, sounds, like a bad, sounds like a bad joke, but okay. But, but uh, be, be it as it may. But does everyone understand this? Without brain death, you cannot do a heart transplant. Because if you went to the earlier definition of death, every heart transplant would be murder. So, the big question is alright so secular law can say whatever it wants to say and it goes back and forth on this the question becomes what does halacha say? when is a person dead according to halacha? because this is critical if halacha says you're not dead until your heart stops then heart transplants would be impermissible because the heart didn't stop if halacha says you're dead when your brain is no longer functioning. Now again, I don't mean a coma, I don't mean a coma. A coma, your brain is functioning. Okay, be sure you understand that. Nobody is advocating organ donation from comatose people. Even secular love doesn't do that. But when your brain dead, and the whole breathing is only from the uh, from the machine, the question is, what does Halacha say? So here, as you would always uh, assume, there is a big, big machlokas. Uh, Many, many opinions, different opinions, and different nuances of these opinions. Uh, And that's why heart transplants is such a controversy, because it's either the greatest mitzvah or the greatest aver. If the person is dead, using his heart to save a life is a tremendous mitzvah. If he's alive, taking the heart is the biggest aver. See? you can't be neutral here because it's either a tremendous mitzvah to do or a tremendous avera to do to kill a person to save somebody else is still murder. so let me go over some of, the, some of the history here back in the 1980s all the way back in the 1980s Hadassah Hospital I'm going to start with Israel here Hadassah Hospital wanted to get approval to do heart transplantation surgery I'm not sure if they do it in Israel not at all but in the 1980s, they wanted to do heart transplantation surgery. And in those days, they needed the approval of the chief rabbinate because they were kind of still guided a little bit by halacha, whether heart transplantation was halakhically a permissible procedure. The Israeli chief rabbinate in 1980 said it was permissible. And they based it on the following idea. When Hashem created... Adam, it is described, Vayipach Biapav Nishmas Chayim. Hashem breathed into his nostrils the soul of life. Remember that verse? Nishmas chayim. And it was through the breathing of the soul into his nostrils that he became a living being. In fact, the word Nishama, soul, Nishama, comes from. Nashima. Nashima means breathing. So the Israeli chief rabbi had said the definition of human life, human life, not just Jewish life, human life, is the capacity to breathe. Therefore, since brain dead people By definition, if the brain stem is destroyed, there is no capacity of respiration. And the fact that the respirator is pumping air in, that's the same thing as pumping air into a bicycle tire. It's really no difference at all. Totally just, uh, the lung is just a pump. So therefore they said, a person who lacks spontaneous respiration is considered halakhically dead. And if they're considered halakhically dead, you are permitted to take their heart to transplant it, even though the heart is still beating, but that's simply a, a, a beating heart in a dead person. In other words, the, the test of the Israeli chief rabbinate is capacity to breathe. That when there's a lack of spontaneous respiratory spontaneous respiratory capacity, That is enough to declare a person dead. Now, this is an enormously problematical definition. Let me explain why. It is true that brain death is one example of a lack of spontaneous respiratory capacity. But I'll give you another example. Let's take the very tragic sickness, ALS, ALS is is often called uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, because the famous, Lou Gehrig was a very, very famous uh, baseball player, and uh, that was the disease that killed him. And uh, ALS is, again, an awful, awful, awful illness where everything gets gradually paralyzed, including the muscles of the lung, the muscles of the lung, meaning the brain is fine, a person with ALS can be totally conscious. They may not be able to move, but they're intelligent. In fact, I, I just spoke during Chanukah, there's a Shaliach in California, Rav uh, Yitzchak Horowitz, who's really a tremendous, tremendous tzaddik, uh, he uh, has ALS, and he's totally, totally paralyzed. Uh, he, has a fam- he has a family from before. He has a wife and seven children, beautiful children. And he continues to teach, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a miracle, the amount of koach that this takes. The only thing he can move is his eyes. And by focusing on a keyboard, uh, somehow, there's a laser thing that he could actually type words. But imagine one letter at a time, mm, 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 mm. And he sends out Divri Torah, you you, you you want to check him out, Trevi Korowitz in California. And he sends the Torah out, just tremendous, tremendous. But, but, but it's, it really is such such a tragedy. We don't understand the the darkei Hashem. Now, here is the thing: in advanced stages, and Ravitzik is not quite there yet, uh, you're not able to breathe on your own. You you're hundred percent respirator dependent. Now, is the Israeli Chief Rabbinate going to say that? Somebody who reaches this advanced stage of ALS is considered dead, even though he's conscious, awake, able to interact? Uh, so, of course not. So the problem is this. The Israeli chief Rabbinate's definition that what? Inability to have spontaneous respiration equals death is very, 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 very difficult because that would mean people with ALS are dead, and that's certainly not the case. People with polio, you know, polio... Used to, uh, used to kill a lot of people. Bruch Hashem, uh, since the uh, 50s and early 60s, uh, there's been a polio vaccine, although unfortunately some of the anti-vaxxers are against polio vaccines, which is absolutely insane. Uh, but uh, it used to be that when people had polio, at some point they would stop breathing and they were, they were in this thing called iron lungs. You ever see a picture of this? iron lung. So I think there are like a few people, old people, who are still in the iron lung. And they can't even find technicians to, to repair those things. I mean, they're, because iron lungs, they stopped making them like uh, 50 years ago. But there are some people on them. Now, an iron lung at some point, you know, you're totally, you can't breathe at all without the iron lung. It's like an artificial breather. So I'm gonna consider the Israeli chief rabbinate's definition as very, very difficult. In other words, let me, again, let me emphasize. They didn't say brain death equals death. They said inability to breathe equals death. Now that's much broader than brain death and there's a lot of problems. Now, uh, I believe as well that for political reasons, well, either political or halakha, you can, you, you can cite, uh, the Israeli chief rabbinate's permission is no longer in effect. Uh, what happened was that the Israeli chief rabbinate became more Haredi over the years and they became a little bit stricter, or maybe a lot more stricter in halacha. So that psaq that was given in the 1980s is no longer the position of the rabbinate. And in any case, I don't think, although well, I can check this, but I'm not sure, I don't think that Israel presently performs a heart transplant surgery. I think anyone that needs it goes to Europe or the United States. Because or, of uh, Huh? Because of
0: halacha?
1: The- par- part of it is halacha, and I think that even the hospitals that don't keep halacha are not, uh, really? just, don't, just don't do it. I mean, I mean, Israel is a small country. I mean, in order to have donors, you know, you need uh, enough, you know, you need a bigger population. This is a little bit of a smaller population to have uh, organ donors, especially with the fact that most Orthodox Jews are not going to donate uh, their heart. Okay. Now, the second sheet that they keep in mind is the position of many of the modern Orthodox rabbis in America, uh, particularly those who are members of the RCA. RCA is uh, a group of uh, 900 relatively modern Orthodox rabbis. Uh, RCA just means Rabbinical Council of America. And they take the position that brain death Not just not breathing, total brain death. Brain death is equal to halachic death. And a person is dead when their brain no longer coordinates any functions of the body. Again, please, I'm going to repeat for the tenth time, this does not mean coma. Coma is not brain death because the brain stem is functioning. But if there's total brain death, including brain stem death, the person is dead even if the heart is beating because it is the brain that determines the existence of life. And therefore, the ALS patient is alive because he's still, his brain is still functioning. Okay, the ALS person. Right, that's why this is a better definition than the Israeli chief rabbinate. But a person who has a clinical diagnosis of brain death is halachically dead. And they bring an interesting proof from a Mishnah. Right, because you can't just, this is not just a question of sitting around and saying, oh, I think this, I think this. Everything has to be based on proofs from Mishnah, Gomorrah, and the like. And here is what the Mishnah is talking about. The Mishnah in question is not talking about people at all. It's actually talking about animals. And there is a halakha that you need to know. Again, it's not so relevant today. And uh, that is, a dead animal, just like if you touch a dead human body, you're tame for seven days. So if you touch a dead animal, you are tame for one day. Now, let, let, me, let me stop there to digress for a moment just to clarify something. What does it mean to be tummy? Let, let's assume I touch a human body. Let's assume I go to a funeral, I go to a cemetery, so I'm tummy. What does it mean to be tummy? What, 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 what can't I do because I'm tummy? Yeah. Um, I was curious
0: about the organization status in Israel, so I looked it up. Yep. And in two thousand and eight the Knesset approved two laws designed to regulate organ donations. The first law defines brain respiratory death as a situation in which yep. a person who has no blood pressure fails to breathe without external life support systems yep. and has no response from the people or any other reflexes. Yep. is dead by two certain Yep.
1: Yep, yep. So in, yeah, so in other words, yeah, that's exactly right. Meaning Israel, as a secular country, that's that's the issue. It's highlighted. Mm-hmm. Has uh, has adopted essentially brain death as as death. Yes. But the question is, you So so yes. So according, so under Israeli law, the person is dead, which would mean under Israeli law, if they did heart transplants, they would be allowed to do it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The question is, does halacha accept it? That, that's the question. You see, just because the Knesset passed the law, does not mean halacha would accept. Right. So that's exactly uh, the point that we're that we that we're discussing.
0: Yeah. In a case where, if we're following, let's say Halakha's holding that brain damage is death. Yes,
1: or not brain damage. Brain, brain death. death is death.
0: Brain whatever. Brain not working.
1: Yeah, brain death it's brain, called death, brain death, death, is death is Halakha's death. Does
0: that mean that as soon as someone is brain dead. To Delphi, you would put him on a machine.
1: That's correct, that's correct, that's dead. correct. According, <laughs> to...
0: does see brain dead as no, no I'm, I'm, telling okay, you, I'm, I'm
1: telling you it's a my In other words, I'm, I'm, presenting, I'm, I'm presenting the different views in order. Uh, the Israeli chief rabbinate in 1980 said if the person doesn't breathe, he's dead. Uh, the RCA says in recent years, if a person is diagnosed as brain dead, they are dead which means you can take them, you could take them off a machine, you could bury them in a cemetery, and you could take their heart because they're dead. This is not the only view, but, but the view that I said so far, uh, this is the view. Now, the proof that they bring to this, I'll tell you the proof, it's an interesting proof. It's from the laws of Tuma, uh, the laws of impurity of human corpses and animals. Now, just as a digression, because I want to be sure that uh, just you clarify the term, If I touch a dead body, or I'm in a cemetery, or I'm in the same room as a dead body, I am ritually tameh for seven days. Now, what does that mean? So today it means very little. If I'm a kohen, I'm not allowed to do that. That's one thing it means. If I'm not a kohen, no problem. Uh, But in the time of the Beit Hamikdash, the laws of purity were very important. Because if you are tameh, you're not allowed to go to the temple, you're not allowed to eat korbanos, You're not allowed to eat Tumah. So Tumah was a very important idea in the time of the Besamikdash. Now, the same way you're for seven days, if you touch a human corpse, you're for one day if you touch a dead animal. Now, you may ask a question, what do you mean touch a dead animal? So if I eat a hamburger I'm Tumah, hamburger is dead meat, right? Well, the answer is, any kosher animal that was shechted does not convey impurity. But if you touch either a non-kosher dead animal or a kosher animal that was not shechted, it was killed or something another way, you are tame for one day. Okay, But this is only if the animal is dead. And
0: this is
1: only if you touch it, right? Yeah, you have to well, touch it or move it.
0: I'm saying it would be like a Jewish corpse where you're under the same roof.
1: That's, that's correct. The special rule that if you're under the same roof uh, you become Tame is only a human corpse. It does not apply to animals. Animals are either touching it or moving it. Okay. Now, the, now this is only true if the animal is dead. If I touch even a pig that's alive, I don't become Tame. Okay. Not, not that you should touch pigs, whatever it is. Like, Tuma is only when something is dead and not when something's alive. Now, the Mishnah says the following question. What if an animal was decapitated? Not shifted, decapitated like a chicken. And even after the animal is decapitated, it still has convulsion movements. And I touch it while it's still convulsing.
0: Huh? So that's the question.
1: Is it, So the brain, in other words, has been severed from the body, but there is spasmatic movement. So the Mishnah says that spasmodic movement is not treated as vital movement. It's not treated as life movement. It's just surplus electricity, like you said. And as a result, if I touch the animal, I am tame because the animal is dead. It is not alive. And the fact that there's movement does not count because spasmodic movement that is not coordinated by the brain, is not an indicator of life that's the Mishnah that's a Mishnah so Rabbi Moshe Tendler who's a he was Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's son-in-law and uh, he is uh, both a professor of biology as well as a Rav and a Posek, uh says that if you see from the Mishnah that anatomical decapitation that means physically separating the brain from the body equals death because the movement is not connected from the brain, he argued that brain death should be treated as, this is a nice phrase he invented, physiological decapitation. Meaning, yes, the head is connected to the body, but if the brain is not coordinating anything, then it's as if the brain is no longer connected to the body, even if it's physically connected. And therefore, his argument was...
0: Marcia
1: well, okay, I'll, I'll get to that. Uh, I, I didn't say it in the name of her Moshe Feinstein. I said in the name in of her Moshe Tendler. Times like yeah, the- I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, so Rabbi Tendler argued that brain death should be treated in the same way as decapitation, even though it's not decapitation, and therefore the person should be treated as dead for taking him off life support, burying him in the ground, and indeed, taking his heart for transplantation. Now, the other that his very revered father-in-law, Moshe Feinstein, who was a great, great, great posek, was in agreement with him. Uh, but the jury is out. You know, Moshe's uh, oldest son uh, just died a few weeks ago, uh, Rav David Feinstein, who was already in his 90s, and Rav David Feinstein denied that his father endorsed brain death. Rabbi Tender, the son of law, say, yeah. So what Reb Moshe's position is, is unfortunately a little bit shrouded in mystery. So I, I will not say anything. Well, the letter can be interpreted a, a lot of different ways. Uh, the letter of Reb Moshe was that, uh, number one, you're allowed to receive a heart transplant, but that doesn't mean you're allowed to donate. Uh, and number two, Reb Moshe said, any family that does not accept brain death as death, they, their wishes should be listened to. So he, he didn't say what his own position was. He just said that um, nobody should be forced to take somebody off life support. Meaning if, if people want to keep a brain-dead person on life support, the government should not force them, uh, take force the family to discontinue life support. Because governments were doing that. Governments were saying, if we declare the guy dead, we're not going to let you use up uh, a room in an I- ICU in an intensive care unit you see so Rabosha just wrote a letter against that type of coercion so Ra position is not 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 at all not at all clear so based but doesn't
0: on he have, sorry, but doesn't he have like a whole lot of discussing like if you put a feather under someone and like the machine's still beating?
1: well uh, you can interpret it in, in different in different ways I mean uh Rebosha did say as long as the person is breathing, they're not brain dead, that, that's right, for and sure. said
0: that we use machines to, to see them. Th- that's
1: for sure. But the question is this. The question is the other way around. Uh, Rav Moshe just put it in the negative. As long as there is breathing, the person is alive. That's fine. The question would be, what if there is no breathing capacity, but you're keeping them alive by a respirator? Th- that, that question was not, was not, fully, was not fully addressed. So there's a little little bit of ambiguity. Now, because of Rabbi Tender's influence, who's a very big influence in America, uh, most of the modern Orthodox rabbinates does consider brain death to be death. And therefore, they will support heart transplants. I think I mentioned this before. There's an organization uh, in America called the Halachic Organ Donor Society. And they have a big website with a lot of articles. Uh, you can read all, and, and they put articles on both sides of this. Uh, it's abbreviated H-O-D-S dot org. And the guy who runs it actually has spoken at you note. Know, I, I thought he shouldn't speak at note because he's pushing uh, one side. But he's spoken, right? maybe he'll come again. I, I'm not, uh, I don't have any veto power over anybody. Uh, his name is Robbie Berman. And Robbie Berman is a very big advocate that Orthodox Jews should be willing to sign organ donor forms, including heart transplants. And let me give you a little story about, it's called Hodes, H-O-D-S, hodes.org. And uh, this was an organization that was established in the aftermath of the death of a young woman, Alyssa Flato. Alyssa Flato was an Orthodox uh, girl from New Jersey who came to Israel for a year for seminary. And I think, uh, maybe it's more than 20 years ago already, uh, she, she got uh, murdered in a blowing up of a bus, a terrorist
0: attack. Mm-hmm.
1: And again, a very, very tragic, uh, very tragic death. And her parents, who followed Rabbi Tender's guidance, donated her organs. And I think five people were saved, like, you know, somebody got a heart, and somebody got the liver, and somebody got the lungs, and somebody got kidneys. Her organs, it was actually—it kind of almost a little bit of an ace that her organs were intact in a bombing, but the organs were all salvageable, and uh, they saved five people. And uh, the parents were so incredibly moved by the idea that their daughter's death could somehow bring life to five people that they very much wanted to raise consciousness of organ donation as a halakhically permissible option, so what they did was they created a foundation, the Halachic Organ Donor Society, and Ravi Berman is the executive director. And if you check hodes.org, you will see all of the arguments in favor of halachic brain death, and uh, including Ravaji Yosef, I should add. That, that you have the mod- I mentioned the Israeli chief rabbinate, I mentioned the modern orthodox rabbinate in America. And uh, in terms of great, great post it was Ravaji Yosef towards the end of his life also allowed uh, brain death. Now, I have to present the other side, I have to present the other side. It is, however, unfortunately the case that most of the poskim that we consider to be the gedolim, the greatest halachic authorities, have not supported, have not supported brain death as halachically permissible. And uh, I, I'll just mention a few names. Uh, these are very famous names, some of them you might know, some of them you might not know. Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Rav Yosef Shalom Eliyoshif, uh the Tzitz Eliezer, of Eliezer Waldenberg, that I think I've mentioned before, uh, Rav Shmuel Vosner. These are really uh, big, big Poskin uh, uh, uh Diane Weiss, that's the Minchas yeah. Yitzchak with Isaac uh, Weiss. Uh, and all of these came out against brain death. Now... And Avadji Yosef, in the beginning of his life,
0: also was against?
1: Yes, originally he was, yes, yes. Towards the end of his life, he changed his position. Um, so that's why, actually, some people say, it's not such an authoritative chuba because maybe, whatever, okay. It was mamish towards, like, a few days before he died, oh, really? so... There's always, like, there's some question. Wait, it. what happened
0: before he died? What?
1: Rovaji Yosef uh, wrote shortly before he died that he supported brain death as halachic death, and therefore he would permit a heart transplant, uh, which, which had been a change of his position. But most of the other senior gedolim did not accept, did not accept it. Uh, so it's hard for me to know what to say in terms of halachol There are different reasons why they didn't accept it. Some didn't accept it because they acknowledged that maybe brain death is valid, but how do you know your test is accurate, that there's... In other words, yes, if we knew 100%, yes, but how can you take even a 1% chance that you're committing murder? In other words, some post said, we accept brain death in theory, but we don't accept it in practice because the diagnostic tests are not so accurate. Others had a different point, that they said as long as the heart is beating... The person is alive. And they quoted a different verse. They quoted the idea that the Torah says in Leviticus, in Vayikra, that we're not allowed to eat blood. We're not allowed to eat blood. And what's the language? Because the blood is the nefesh. The blood is the life force. And even if you call it, as Hasidus calls it, the nefesh Bahamas. <laughs> right? Even the animal soul, keep in mind, that if you kill the animal soul of a human, you're guilty of killing a human, not an animal. even the part of us that's an animal uh, is murder, right? It's not. It's not like killing an animal. So they look at if if the blood is called a nefesh, that means as long as the heart is beating, you're alive, right? So, be it as it may, therefore, the, those poskim have said that removal of a heart based on brain death is murder, and it could not be could not be allowed. So. What can I say? At this point, I would have to say, if somebody were to ask me, are they allowed to sign an organ donor card that would have their heart removed based on brain death criteria, I would have to tell them that most post say you are not allowed to authorize that because you are authorizing a murder uh, as opposed to saving the life by a person who's already dead. Okay? But as I say, you know, if you uh, have a question about this, you should uh, ask whoever you ask your Shilohs to, because there may be different interpretations of this Shiloh. So now, let me mention the final aspect of this. And that is, okay, so removal, let, let's assume the khumra, let's assume the stricter view, just for purposes of illustration. Let's assume that you're not allowed to authorize the removal of your heart, because that's an act of murder, because we don't treat brain death, as Allah That's the Khumra, right? That's the stricter view. What about receiving an organ? Let's say you have a religious person who has a defective heart. And the only way he's going to live is by getting a heart transplant. Whether he gets it in Israel, whether he gets it in America, whether he gets it in Europe. If I am a person who believes that removal of the heart is murder, let's assume that that's my psach, that's the halacha that I follow. If I follow Rabbi Tender, no problem. Like Rabbi Tender, there's no problem in removing the heart, so there's no problem in getting the heart. Right, so like Rabbi Tender, there's no issue. Like the Israeli chief rabbinate, there's no problem. But I'm raising a problem like the third opinion. Like the view that removal of the heart is an act of murder, am I allowed, if God forbid I'm sick, am I allowed to put myself on an organ recipient list to get something that is being obtained by what I consider to be an act of murder? Now, the one thing I can tell you empirically is that There are many Orthodox, well, not many, because there aren't aren't that many, but there are very, very staunchly Orthodox Jews who will receive heart transplants if they need it, and they will be told that they can do that because it's pikuach nefesh, it's saving a life. Now, Rabbi Tendler accuses them of hypocrisy. Rabbi Tendler says... If you think you can't give your heart because it's murder, how can you take the heart if they're murdering the person they're taking it from? So Rabbi Tendler's position was you either give or you don't take. If you're willing to give, you have the right to take if you need it. If you're not willing to give, you don't have the right to take. That's Rabbi Tendler's position. And his position is, you can give, and therefore you can take. But Rabbi Tender said he, he's not going to accept the idea that I'm not allowed to give, because it's murder, but I can take. So, I understand intuitively why this sounds like a very, very logical position. But in defense, let me just say, there is a, an argument that you can take, even if you can't give, and, and here's, the, here's the argument. The argument is that with organ donation, the demand for organs is much greater than the supply, meaning many more people need than the supply. So I'm going to make up a number. I don't have the exact number in front of me. Let's imagine that for every heart that's available, this is just a made-up number, there are 10 people who need it. So we have a list of 1 to 10. Now, here is the thing. Let's assume I take the position that removal of a heart is murder. But even if I take myself off the list, let's assume because of my religious principles, I take myself off the list. The murder is going to happen anyway. Meaning to say, this guy is going to be murdered with me or without me. If this guy is going to be murdered with me or without me, I can benefit from an evil act after the fact as long as I'm not the reason that it occurred. Now, if it would be a one-to-one, meaning to say, if I'm the only one who needs the heart, and without me, they would leave the guy in life support, then I wouldn't be allowed to accept the heart, because I'd be causing a murder.
0: Okay. But, but I'm not so, causing so by the taking murder. taking the heart, then other people who could have gotten saved... like.
1: Well, you're certainly as good as anybody else. I mean, you, right. you don't have to... I can't take the heart because... Oh, yeah, well,
0: if it. I'm holding that, for me, it's murder to kill that person. Yeah. And then I'm... No. But you're not
1: causing the murder. That's the thing. You're not causing the murder. In other words, like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've ever watched the police shows, uh, everybody, no, even, no, even, no, even no, if no. you didn't go to law school and you know, watched whatever it is, you know this, uh, this famous rule uh, of the United States law... That if the police found incriminating evidence, but they didn't warn you of your rights or they didn't get a search warrant, so even if they found the murder weapon and the smoking gun, you go free. That's one of the most infamous rules of American law. That's called the exclusionary rule. Wait, what's the law? This is a famous rule that if, if, if the police searched your car or searched your house and yes. they found evidence of a crime, or even if you confess but they didn't warn you you had the right to remain silent, okay. so, you go free. You, you cannot go to jail. You cannot go to jail for what they found, even if they found the murder weapon, even if they found your confession, everything, because they didn't warn you of your constitutional rights, your right to remain silent. You know the famous, probably know it by heart, you have the right to remain silent uh, anything you say can be used against everything you. You, you have the be right be. to an attorney and one will be... provided. I used to know it by heart, but whatever it is. Uh, but but it's kind of, it's become an iconic every police show on television, Law & Order, whatever it is will have all of these things now, the exclusionary rule is based on the idea that anything that is obtained by an immoral action is tainted and inadmissible even for good purposes Halacha does not actually have that rule Halacha says even if The obtaining of the heart was immoral, was improper, was murder, once it was obtained, if you didn't cause that to happen, you can benefit even from the immoral actions of others. Which would mean, in other words, this creates the asymmetry that Rabbi Tendler found very upsetting. I could take a heart even if I wouldn't be allowed to give a heart. It's very interesting. Now, Let me give you an example, a parallel example to this. The Nazis, and see what you think about this, the Nazis during World War II used to do, besides concentration camps, they would do medical experiments on on people, mainly Jews, almost 90% Jews, but other, other people as well. And one of their experiments were they would take people naked and they would immerse them in freezing water and they would measure how long it took for different parts of the body to shut down. I mean, they basically murdered people by torture, but they made it like a medical experiment. And what's even more bizarre is, they wrote up the, the results of these experiments in medical journals in the 1930s, as if it was like Stamm Science. In other words, uh, they, these were studies about uh, effects of hypothermia on human beings mean barbaric. Now, those experiments could not be done today ethically. They they would certainly not be allowed. So, in the 1970s, some medical researchers found those old medical journals and wanted to use the data in some new studies. And the question was, well, wait a second here. You want to use the data of Nazi experimentation? that's kind of almost giving a hechshar on it. You're saying, oh, there's some legitimate use here. There's some benefit here. And there were many survivors of the Holocaust who were totally aghast, totally abhorred that scientists would want to use this data. But, you know, emotionally I understand it. But from the standpoint of halakha, halakha would basically say, listen, this was an awful thing, this was a sinful thing, this was an atrocity. But the deed was done already. If the deed was done, why shouldn't we try to get some benefit? Right? Is the attitude that consign it to oblivion? Some would say that. Or get whatever benefit you can get from a dastardly evil deed. So this is kind of the same thing, and that is, if I'm not causing the murder, the guy's gonna be murdered with me or without me because the demand is greater than the supply, then my life should also be entitled to that potential benefit. Again, I understand that this makes some people uncomfortable. I, I, I appreciate that. But this would be, the, uh, this would be the, the hetter to be put on an organ a recipient list, even if you're, you're not willing to be an organ donor. Now, I will say that I believe the European Union, I, I mentioned beginning, the beginning, uh, was very much against uh, Jews, I mean, they were against Jews generally going and getting organs, and they wanted to pass a regulation that said nobody can be eligible for an organ recipient unless they signed an organ donor card. Now, they went a little further because some people who need a heart transplant, they'll sign an organ donor card because obviously their organs are not suitable for anything. So, I mean, you'll sign anything because they're not going to take organs from somebody who needs a heart transplant. But the requirement was you had to sign it more than five years before you came with that need. They had to be sure that you were committed to it at the time. So I'm not sure if that was passed, uh, but they were proposing it, and that would have stopped uh, uh, religious Jews from getting organ transplants in the European Union. But again, the European Union has all sorts of objectives. I I believe that uh, Belgium, uh, just prohibited uh, Jewish ritual shrite. Uh You know, so whatever it is. So uh, Europe is hardly a, a place of Avat and, and, Yisrael and the like. Okay, so that's kind of uh, what you need to know about organ uh, donation. And uh, next week we'll talk about another aspect of reproductive, of uh, medical ethics, reproduction technology. Surrogate motherhoods, in vitro fertilization, and, and the like. So take care, be well for the stove. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Thank you.